You're listening to the Grace Covenant East Lincoln Audio Podcast. We're going to step right into the message. So if you would take out your teaching notes, and also if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and when you get there, as always, if you just hold your place, we'll come back to that passage of Scripture in just a short bit. Um, this marks our fourth week in our Kingdom of God series. Last weekend, we took our first look uh, at the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are eight kingdom proclamations made by Jesus, and they actually form the beginning of the very first sermon that he taught publicly. We know that sermon as a Sermon on the Mount. Now, let me put that sermon in context a little bit. When we look at the end of Matthew chapter 4, we find that there were crowds of people from all the surrounding areas of Galilee, and they began to follow Jesus from place to face, place. And then when we begin uh, to look at uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, this is what we read. Jesus saw the crowds. He went up on the mountainside. He sat down. The disciples followed him, and he began to teach them. Now, the disciples that gathered with him that day on the mountainside, really, it it wasn't limited to the, the 12 disciples that we read about throughout the Gospels. In fact, those 12 disciples, though some of them may have been in the crowd, had not been chosen uh, as that inner circle of 12 yet. Basically, that crowd, which means that it was more than the 12, that crowd was made up of a, of a group of working class Jews. They had heard John the Baptist identify Jesus as the Messiah. So as they gathered that day on that mountainside, I would imagine that they had great expectation that Jesus the Messiah was going to reveal to them his military strategy for overcoming coming the Roman government and delivering them from the tyranny and the the oppression of Rome. Because remember, their uh, understanding of Messiah was that the Messiah would come and he would set up a physical kingdom. Um, However, that day, as Jesus began to speak, I would imagine that they were quite surprised based on their expectations. And in fact, I can imagine that as Jesus began to speak that day, that they might have thought something like this. Um, If this is his plan A, I hope he's got a plan B in his back pocket because I don't think plan A is going to work. Again, based on their expectations of a physical kingdom being set up that would overthrow the Roman government, it would be hard for them to be able to translate the words that Jesus was speaking into any kind of aggressive military strategy. Now, we read the passage, Matthew 5, 1 through 12 last week, but I want to read it again today. And um, as I read, I want you to imagine yourself being in the crowd on the mountainside that day, but I want you to listen with a different expectation. We understand that Jesus didn't come to set up a physical kingdom, but instead it was a spiritual kingdom. And so as you listen, I want you to listen as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and listen to hear what Jesus is calling us to do or to be. These are the be attitudes. So what is it that he's calling us to do? What is it he's calling us to be? So listen, follow along as I read beginning in 5.1. 
Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who were persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who uh, were before you. So, uh, Jesus is presenting a way of living for kingdom citizens. If you were here last week, you might recall that I talked about the fact that throughout the Beatitudes, Jesus always follows a pattern. And it kind of looks like this. It's as if he's saying, hey, I want to make you aware of a blessing that is available to you. And then he describes an attitude or a value that is associated with, that's connected to that kingdom. It's a kingdom attitude. It's a kingdom value. And then he actually reveals what that blessing is. These kingdom attitudes, these kingdom values that Jesus describes were a radical contradiction to the traditions, the attitudes, the values that the ones in the audience that day had been immersed in. Uh, in, in the culture that they, that they lived in. Um, there was a reason for this contradiction. Jesus was calling for kingdom citizens to have an attitude shift. And it wasn't a casual shift. It was a radical shift. Jesus' message about the kingdom that we read throughout the Gospels reveals a different set of values. It reveals a different way of thinking. It reveals a kingdom way of thinking. What Jesus is actually doing is he's reconstructing the heart. And as he begins this message, this Sermon on the Mount, he's using the Beatitudes, these kingdom attitudes, these kingdom values as the tools for this reconstruction. This became very obvious last week as we looked at the first two Beatitudes. Jesus began and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus starts off his very first sermon talking about poverty. That doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? Does it? No, you can say no, it's okay. It, it really doesn't. But what we have to realize is Jesus isn't talking about poverty as in the absence of material things. He's talking about spiritual poverty. He's talking about the fact that we must recognize that our poverty, our spiritual poverty, is that we were bankrupt before God because of our sin and the problem that sin caused. And because of that bankruptcy, because of that poverty, we do not, did not have what it takes to become the people that God has caused us to be. Therefore, we desperately need God. And then he goes on to say, Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. I have to, I have to be honest with you, that doesn't sound very comforting to me either. That doesn't sound very encouraging. 
He's talking about poverty. Now he's talking about mourning, but we have to read it in context. Remember, the, um, the Beatitudes aren't a la carte. You don't pick and choose. You don't say, I have some of this one and some of this one. I'm going to skip the mourning part. Uh, the persecution part, no way. I'm not going to have any. There, there's actually a progression that Jesus is following. They're all connected. So we have to understand blessed are they who mourn in context with spiritual poverty. So what he's saying is, you have to recognize that there's a sin problem and you have a desperate need for God. But not only do you recognize the sin and the sin problem, but then you begin to mourn. You begin to grieve over that sin. I asked the question last week, when's the last time you mourned over sin? When's the last time you grieved over sin? When we can really... Um, embrace this kingdom attitude of spiritual poverty and then mourning over sin. Here's what happens. In that spiritual mourning, repentance begins to happen. And that's when we recognize I've been walking away from God because of sin. I've been pursuing my own way. And repentance is that we would turn and we would walk back towards God and we would say, God, I pursue you. I pursue holiness. I pursue right living. I pursue your way. And then that repentance uh, causes there to be a willingness, a courageousness of heart that we would be willing to look inside and say, Holy Spirit, will you show me what's really going on in my heart? What's causing me to think this way instead of God's way? And then when we pray that prayer, guess what? The Holy Spirit will reveal. And then we say, Holy Spirit, will you help me make the change that I need to make? That's what happens when we mourn over our sin. Well, today we want to take a look at three more Beatitudes. And in verse 5, Jesus begins by talking about meekness. He says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Um, we notice each of the Beatitudes begins with the word blessed. And oftentimes when you read it in other translations, it might say happy. And that's a correct translation. Really, that word blessed can be understood as happy, spiritually content, spiritually prosperous. And listen to this. You can be happy, blessed, content, spiritually prosperous despite your circumstances. That's really the message that Jesus is getting across. Regardless of what your circumstances are, you can experience the blessedness, the happiness, the spiritual prosperity because it's not connected to your feelings. It's something that God supernaturally gives. That's so important for us to understand because we'll never be able to conjure this up in ourselves. So it's as Jesus is saying, spiritually prosperous and content are those who are meek. Well, what does it mean to be meek? Hmm. Um, you may not like what I'm getting ready to share with you. I didn't really like it. But uh, William Barclay, a theologian, he says, listen to this. Uh, a person who is meek is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. You want me to go on? He goes on to say, a meek person has every instinct 
every impulse and every passion under control. There's more. You want to keep going. Uh, Another theologian says, a meek person is the person who is angry on the right occasion, with the right people, at the right moment, for the right amount of time. Is there anybody else in the room besides myself that says, I don't think I qualify. I don't think I qualify for this blessing. That's kind of my response. It's like, I I don't think I qualify for this blessing. Um, In myself, remember, I don't have what it takes to be the person that God calls me to be. We have to understand that the Beatitudes, they're not natural traits. They're supernatural endowments that come from the Holy Spirit as we submit ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit. They can only be obtained supernaturally. That means that our passions come under control only when we allow ourselves to be God-controlled. Now, <laughs> if, you've been, if you've been a believer for any amount of time, do, do you agree we kind of learn all the right things to say and we kind of have our, our, our Christian vocabulary and so we can say things about let go and let God. You got to just let you talk different. Just, just give control to God. God's got you covered. But wouldn't you say that it's easier to say that than to do it or even to believe it for ourselves when it's our situation and somebody's saying, just let go and let God. But what if God doesn't work? What if, what if he does it differently than, than I? Listen, we have to. We have to. This is meekness. Bring it under every passion, under God's control. Now, think back to the crowd. That had gathered that day. If they were expecting Jesus to reveal an aggressive military strategy. Then they had to be shocked. And here's why. Meekness was not a value that they felt that one should embrace. In fact, they thought it was a weakness that should be avoided. Meek people are weak people. Um. How could that be translated into an aggressive military strategy? Because you don't want to be weak. So for you and I, in ourselves, we have to guard against confusing meekness and weakness. To suggest that we are meek does not mean that we are weak. Listen to this. Instead, meekness is power under control. Power under control. It's a power that's completely surrendered to God's control. It's a hard attitude in which all of our energies are brought into the perfect will, brought into alignment with the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you, do you own this kingdom value? Is this attitude part of your kingdom life? Let me ask you some questions that might help you with that. Number one... How do you treat other people? Do you treat them harshly or with gentleness? Number two, do you take time to consider how your actions might affect other people? Number three, do you work hard at getting what you want 
even at the expense of other people. Number four, when you're mistreated, do you feel a need to get revenge? And number five, do you find that people are afraid of your responses, your reactions? I want you to consider those questions and then follow-up question is, is there something that you might need to surrender to God so that the Holy Spirit can work meekness in your life? We could be of the belief that says, if I choose meekness, I will always be at the disadvantage. And I would say that if you choose to believe that, you're believing a false belief. The very fact that Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It's his assurance to us that if we will practice meekness, he will make sure that we will not end up on the short end of the stick. It's his promise. But we have to practice meekness. So he moves on in the sermon and he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That's in verse 6. Hunger and thirst represent two of the most basic needs and desires that a person can have. Um, I thought about this and I thought, you know, because of, uh, wouldn't you say that we live in pretty much a time, uh, a land of prosperity? I mean, even in our little corner of the world, there's there's a lot of prosperity. And I don't mean you have to be rich. I'm just saying, here's the point I'm making. Probably none of us have ever had to really experience what it means to be truly hungry. Because of poverty. Maybe there are some. But probably for most of us. We never have. But that doesn't mean you've never been hungry. Right? Think about this. Have you ever been so involved in your day. Your work day. Maybe working around the house. That late afternoon. Maybe early evening. You realize that you have never taken time to eat anything. And you realize that you are so hungry. That you are now hangry. (laughs) You ever been there? It's a terrible feeling. So what happens at that moment? Your chief aim and goal, your supreme uh, desire in life is food. I have to have food right now. I'll do anything for food. And this might sound strange, but that's really the kind of thing that Jesus is trying to get across here, except that it's not in relation to food. Not in any way whatsoever. Instead, he's saying... Your chief appetite, your desire, your chief goal, your single aim should be for righteousness. Righteousness. Um, In Scripture, uh, righteousness carries the idea of justice or justification. For instance, we are justified before God through the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, when God looks at us, he looks at us through the blood of Jesus Christ. So we're justified. There are three different aspects to this word righteousness. There's the legal aspect, which causes us to have to remember, God is a God of justice. Am I right? So God in his justice said that there had to be a penalty for sin. And he declared that the penalty for sin is death. God in his justice could not let sin go unpunished. The price had to be paid. 
But what we're so thankful for is that he knew that we were unable to pay the price. So he gave his son Jesus and Jesus paid the price so that we could be justified. Again, when God sees us, we are in right standing with him because he sees us through the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross. So that's the legal aspect. There's the moral aspect of righteousness, which deals with personal holiness, which means that you and I should hunger and thirst for a pattern of right living that conforms to the standard of holiness revealed in God's word. We can't compromise on that. This is the standard. If we want to know how to live as kingdom citizens, it's here. And we should hunger and we should thirst in that we would long for, we would desire for uh, this standard of holiness, this personal holiness in our life. It's actually the practical um, living out uh, of of the legal righteousness that we talked about. And then finally, there's the social aspect which deals with righteousness and how we treat other people. We should hunger and desire for righteousness in such a way that it causes us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So let me ask you, how hungry, how thirsty are you? Perhaps for most of you here today, the legal aspect of righteousness has been settled. You've believed in Jesus Christ as Savior, and you know that you've been justified through the blood of Jesus Christ. You are in right standing with God. But... Is your desire, your chief passion, your single aim, your supreme goal to live fully according to the standard of holiness and righteousness that's been revealed in God's word? And does that hunger reveal in you that you're willing to love your neighbor the same way that you love yourself? Because this is the radical attitude shift that Jesus is calling for. It's different than the culture that we live in. And the promise is, if you have this kind of hunger and thirst, you will be filled. You will be satisfied. Finally, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. That's in verse 7. Another way to think about this is Jesus is saying, blessed are they who are full of mercy, for they will be shown mercy. What's this mercy? What's this kingdom attitude? What's this kingdom value that Jesus is describing? Well, one way to think of mercy is that mercy is withholding punishment that's deserved. As in, God has shown his mercy to us. Listen to Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace That you have been saved. So what does that tell us? God in his mercy did not give us what we deserved. Which was death because of our sin. God in his grace gave us what we didn't deserve. Which was forgiveness and right standing. Salvation. Eternal life. So that's one aspect of mercy. But we also show God's mercy when we initiate acts of kindness. Towards anyone who is in trouble. Listen to this. Mercy gives attention to those who are in misery. Mercy has a concern for people and their need. Mercy involves compassion, but it's not just compassion. It involves action. Mercy worked out says, I see the need. I'm moved by the need and I move to meet the need. Mercy is a bridge that God has built to us. 
Mercy is a bridge that we build to others. Mercy is to feel the pain of another person so deeply that we're compelled to do something about it. And we see a tremendous picture of this in Luke chapter 10. I'm not going to have you turn there, but it's a story I think most all of us know. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Some teachers kind of cornered Jesus one day and they said, who is your neighbor? And so Jesus told the story of the the man who uh, was attacked and beaten and placed on the roadside and a, a, a Levite came by, a priest came by, and they just walked on by. They didn't help him. But then a Samaritan who was despised saw the man on the side of the road and had mercy. And Jesus said, who of these three uh, men, who, who was the one that was the real neighbor? And, and, and they said, well, of course, the one who had mercy. That's the kind of mercy that we are called to show. Everyone in God's kingdom has received mercy we didn't deserve. And in the same way, we are to show mercy to others. And the promise is, is that when we make mercy, uh, uh, showing mercy a way of life, we're going to be the recipients of mercy. So in two weeks, we've looked at five kingdom values Five attitudes. Remember, Jesus is doing a reconstruction of the heart. He's calling for not just a shift, but a radical shift. We talked about how it was different than the, the culture, the, the, the attitudes, the values that those in the audience said they had been immersed in in their culture. But our culture is very contrary today to these attitudes. This is not how our world around us says to think. And so it's very easy to fall in to the, 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 the attitude, the, the, the values that are represented in our world instead of living out as kingdom citizens, kingdom values. But Jesus is the master craftsman. And he's wanting to do something in you. I want you to watch this video very briefly. <music> Master craftsman can see something we can't see. We see an old board, faded and scarred. He sees a treasure. He chooses the wood with care. in his mind of the final masterpiece. He begins to transform the raw materials. He mills and dimensions the weathered wood. And makes it useful again. seem effortless. He's taking what is old and creating something different, something new. Jesus is our master craftsman. And he's taking the raw materials in us 
That's what he's using, but he's reconstructing. He's taking something old and he's crafting it into something new. But he's only able to do that as we surrender the old to him. So I ask you today, as you think through these kingdom values, these kingdom attitudes, what in you is Jesus saying, I want to take that and I want to reconstruct it. That's an old way of thinking. And to be really honest, it doesn't line up with what I've laid out in Scripture, what I've laid out in my Word. But don't despair over that because I am the master craftsman and I'm doing a work of reconstruction. And if you'll offer those things to me, I'll make something new in you, something that is very useful for the kingdom. So would you just bow your head, close your eyes, and would you just consider what is it right now that you need to offer to Jesus, the master craftsman. And then when you identify it, just have a conversation with him and offer it to him and ask him to do the work of reconstruction. all over this room conversations are being had with you right now where offerings are being made to you offering the old surrendering it to you and asking for your reconstruction work in those areas I thank you Jesus that as we offer them to you you gladly take them and you work that work by your Holy Spirit And even though there are times where it's very painful, we will stay the course and we will offer those things to you continuously. We anticipate your work, your change in our lives. We invite the radical shift because our heart's desire is that we as kingdom citizens would live according to kingdom values and kingdom attitudes. Do that work in us, I pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, the question that I ask every week, is there anybody here today and you've never said yes to Jesus? You've never really taken time to recognize the sin problem and how sin separates us from God. and You've never really thought about spiritual poverty or your desperate need for God because you can't be the person that he's called us to be without his help. You've never said, yes, Jesus, I believe that you took my place on the cross, that you died for me. And so today I make that confession and I want you to take residence in me. I'm committing my life to you. Is there anybody here today and you would say, that's me. The Holy Spirit is working in my heart right now and I want to say yes to Jesus today. If that's you, would you just lift up your hand and let your eye catch my eye? Is there anybody here at all? just say yes to Jesus today. Anybody at all? Thank you, Father.
Father. I'm going to ask you to stand. Father, thank you for your work in us today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your transforming power. We submit ourselves to you. And we declare that we love you in all that we are and all that we do. We declare our great love for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.